Welcome to season two of Bristlecone Firesides, casual conversation around a virtual fireside about faith, the earth, the universe, and everything. In this second season, we will be journeying into the spiritual wilds as we explore the theme of wilderness. Joining us around our virtual fireside will be some familiar voices, as well as some new guests to help us rediscover the spiritual power of wild things. We are your hosts, Abby and Madison. Bristlecone Firesides is recorded in the tiny carpet-covered attic of the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance, who is our partner for this and future seasons. For more info about SUA and the fight to protect Utah's stunning Red Rock wilderness, visit SUA.org. Why did we choose wilderness as the theme for our second season? Um, well, I think one of the reasons um, back in the formation stage of this podcast, when we were just kind of throwing out ideas and outlining potential seasons, it felt like the most natural, at least in my memory, um, felt like one of the more natural kind of uh, outgrowths from some of the ideas that we covered in the first season um, and just felt like the most uh, conducive step towards other things that we wanted to talk about in the future. Felt like laying the groundwork for some of the other topics and ideas and really deserved its own focus because it is something that's so prominent both within, you know, our gospel, but also within eco studies, I guess. Yeah, no, I, uh, at least if any cursory read of the Bible or the Book of Mormon or whatever, it, the, the wilderness is itself a theme that pops up over and over and over again. Um, and uh, I, so if part of what season one's mission was, was to get ourselves to see ourselves as members of the family of all things, you know, quoting Mary Oliver again. Um, that I think the, the exploration of wilderness, not just as, as a spiritual concept or as a, as a, you know, an, an actual physical world concept of like going out into the wilderness. Um, but as like an exploration of what does it mean to be spiritually wild? Like that membership in the family, all things, how does that change me? And how does that change the way that I act in the world and how I act in relationship to, to everything else? Um, and so in that respect, um, I feel it is a, a this is almost a complement, a complementary uh, extension of our season, our first season, those ideas. Um, and I'm also like, I'm also, uh, I know you've, you and I both read Aldo Leopold, uh, Henry David Thoreau, um, that there's this idea. And I know that I'm pretty sure when I was doing some research that Leopold misquoted mis, mis Henry David Thoreau in this, but he says in uh, the Santa County Almanac that in wildness is the salvation of the world. And that's something that I am really struck by and that I think we owe it to ourselves, especially considering the world that we live in right now with how tumultuous it seems to be feeling that if in wildness is the salvation of the world, we owe it to ourselves to really look at what it means to be wild and see how that is supposed to save us. So what do you think is meant by in wildness is the salvation of the world? Is it something you actually believe? I think it is, but more in the, I mean, if we're talking about Aldo Leopold, one of the ideas that he upheld and, and he's been criticized for maybe being too idealistic about this approach. Mm -hmm. 
But I do think there's something to be said about his idea of the kind of the reunification of man and land as being kind of the key to conservation, the key to preservation. And so I think, I, I do think that (laughs) that is true and that, you know, honestly, I think in wilderness is the salvation of the world that we've got become so separate from that idea of wilderness that we've even removed humans from wilderness or the idea that they can exist in wilderness. And I think one of the things that our gospel does so well and scriptures and, and these other things is that it really places us within the wilderness too. And sometimes it's not always like a friendly interaction. In fact, more often than not, it isn't. But I think there's something to be learned from that. There's something that we need to kind of revisit when it comes to wilderness. Yeah, no, I would agree. Especially because like we talked about in last season, we see ourselves as apart from everything. And that is the fundamental, one of the fundamental illusions of this world is separation. And that once we can overcome that, we can see ourselves as being a part of the wilderness that exists in this world. uh, And that we desperately need to learn the lessons the wilderness can teach us. I think one of the other reasons was that I work for the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance, right? And so I live, I, I breathe and drink and eat wilderness all day, every day for, for my work. And so that primes my eyes to, you know, when I'm reading sacred text or I'm out in the wilderness or I'm, you know, listening to podcasts or music or whatever, I'm primed to think about the world through the lens of wilderness. And so the idea of wildness and wilderness is an incredibly life-giving uh, idea for me. I also think not just for, not just in terms of climate change, right? So, you know, E.O. Wilson, he has this idea that 50% of the planet by, by 2050 campaign. I don't know if you've heard that, where his whole idea is we need to protect and preserve 50% of the planet by 2050 in order right. to combat climate change and the destruction of, of the world, right? And there's some halfway goals for that, like the 30 by 30 campaign, which is something that President Biden is really uh, committed to. And so not just in like is the the physical salvation of the world found in wilderness. I think personally, I think the spiritual salvation of the world is found in wilderness as well. That ultimately like the lessons that we can learn through Jesus and God and a lot of these scriptural figures from Eve to John the Baptist to Enoch, that we can learn that there's a certain degree of wildness in these figures that we need to learn how to emulate so that we can become healed. Mm-hmm. Are there any other figures in scripture that you, that seem to, I don't know, have a relationship to the wilderness? Well, you talked about Eve, you talked about John the Baptist, right? Enoch. Mm -hmm. Did you mention Jesus? Did I? I don't know. I don't, I may have, but but yeah, Jesus. (laughs) Jesus, Noah, we just discussed Noah and I mean, we, as in right before we Mm -hmm. started recording. So I think those are some, some pretty prominent figures within Yeah, because so John the Baptist was, I think he's one of the best examples because he was described as wearing camel hair and eating locusts and wild honey, which was super not a kosher diet at all. And he kind of existed on the periphery of his own community, on the edges of his own community. The Enoch, Enoch describes himself as being a wild man in the book of Moses. Also, we can't forget Lehi and his sons. Oh, right. Yeah. Tearing through the wilderness. Yeah. Yeah. So there's something about the work of being a prophet, you know, quote unquote air quotes, um, being a prophet that puts you at 
odds with society that makes you go cross grain and that kind of puts a wildness on you. Yeah. Which is something we're going to explore later on in the season, but something that definitely put this in my mind, I took a postmodern theology class at BYU. It was my, one of my capstone classes. Uh, And I wrote a paper about Aslan. It was my, it was my final paper because Aslan, Aslan Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia is uh, described as not being tame. He's not a, he's not a tame lion. He's wild. So I wrote an entire paper on what it means for God to be wild. And uh, so I've, just ever since then, just kind of been enamored by this idea of spiritual wildness. So let's, let's jump into, let's, let's start with just a working definition of wildness or wilderness. Um, Wilderness is kind of a construct. It's kind of a constructed idea, right? Can you talk about that? Yeah. I think there are quite a few authors. Thomas Berry talks a little bit about it. Norman Wersba, Wendell Berry talks about it. But it's kind of this interesting notion, and we've mentioned it here before too, the idea that wilderness, simply by naming it or separating it as such, becomes this idea of, something that we are separate from and by kind of naming it or setting it apart as this pristine landscape, it becomes almost impossible for us to think of ourselves as being part of it. Also kind of along the lines of that is like I said, that idea of it being a very pristine preservation without humans, regardless of how long they've lived there or how peaceably they've coexisted. I mean, even if we look at national parks, which have a very fraught history of both humans and kind of this, this need to preserve landscape, they had people living there. Some of the things that we preserve as part of those national parks are human relics from civilizations that lived there. And so I think it's important to remember that we need to be careful before we separate wilderness simply from ourselves. And I think that's part of the construct is this idea that we've put it on a pedestal as if it exists wholly in and of itself. And that if humans were to leave it or to not exist, this is what would be part of the the, the world, you know, this is what the world would look like. And the fact of the matter is we as humans are just as much part of the earth as the dust of the ground from which we're made, but also, you know, all the, the creeping things that are upon it. And so I think that's something that just becomes a little bit disconnected because we have created such a vast separation between you know, the physical things that we construct and the wilderness in which we live. Yeah. No, I think an important point that you, you mentioned is we, we want to be careful. We don't pedestalize yeah. wilderness, right? Because like John Muir, we all love John Muir, but right. he's kind of the grandfather of conservation in America, the, you know, one of the founders of the Sierra club. However, in their quest for these developing of the national parks in California, they actually kicked out indigenous peoples right. from these areas that they were peaceably living in, right? In their quest for this idea of pristine nature outside of humans. Right. And so we want to be careful that we don't reenact that on a smaller scale here where, where we, we don't want to talk about wilderness as though it is some power apart from 
right. us. Or kind of like even furthering that idea that we almost commodify it in the way that we talk about it, that yeah. like we have to go to wilderness to like have this experience in nature, which again, we've talked about on the podcast already. I love this idea from Norman Wersba who says the paradox of the romantic view of wilderness is that it results in a view of nature in which people are welcome only as tourists and in which they cannot make a durable home. By sequestering nature to that realm apart from culture, people give themselves an excuse to be inattentive to and irresponsible with the urban and suburban areas in which they live and the farm fields from which they draw their daily sustenance. So it's just this idea that it exists almost as like a, a nebulous form of of beauty separate from from what we can kind of achieve with it, I right. guess. Yeah. You know, it's like separate, not with. Yeah. I mean, there is some tension here, right? Because I right. think the way that we've constructed our modern world, there is kind of a separation. Right. Yeah. And, no, totally. you know, and that we depend on these quote unquote wild sections of the planet to like sequester carbon oh, yeah. or to create oxygen for us, you know, through the, through algae and through, through trees, right. That there right. are wild portions of the planet that we haven't really touched. Well, yeah. That Eugene. literally are the will the salvation of us because yeah. otherwise if we, if it weren't for them, we wouldn't be able to go on existing. Right. Eugene Odom talks about that, about the city as being a parasite essentially to the rest <laughs> of, to the rest of nature or, or to the rest of like landscape, because he says, you know, people drive through these, these vast landscapes um, across the U S or other parts of the world and say, this is all wasted space or, you know, we should be utilizing this space. But he, he kind of goes through this whole idea of, Without that space, the urban spaces aren't possible because those urban spaces are, like you said, you know, relying on that carbon sequestration or, you know, like all of these different facets that that must go on as life giving systems there that then, you know, make possible the life in those cities, whether it's through farming or just land itself that we are kind of a parasite to that untouched land too. Yeah. So especially if we don't think about it. Yeah. So way. I think we definitely need to honor that tension because I, I definitely agree with the idea that like wilderness is a construction mm -hmm. and we don't want to pedestalize it and like say that it's something separate from us, right. but the way that we've constructed our world makes it so that there are these places that we call wilderness mm -hmm. that are different from everything that we live in. And that they actually do kind of buoy up the whole rest of our civilization. Right. So I think a good example of this, so this is from the Wilderness Act passed by Congress. And this is how, so there there are like, you, you already mentioned national parks and there's national monuments and there are recreation areas and state parks. Another designation that can be put on land is our wilderness areas, right? And so that's part of what my organization, SUA, does is we try and get as much wilderness land designated in Utah. But uh, the Wilderness Act uh, reads, this is how it defines wilderness, it says a wilderness in contrast with those areas where man and his works dominate the landscape is hereby recognized as an area where the earth and its community of life are untrammeled by man, where man himself is a visitor who does not remain. An area of wilderness is further defined to mean in this act, an area of, of undeveloped federal land retaining its primeval character and influence without permanent improvements or human habitations which is protected and managed so as to preserve its natural conditions and which generally appears to have been affected primarily by the forces of nature and the imprint of man's work substantially unnoticeable 
has outstanding opportunities for a solitude or primitive or unconfined types of recreation, has at least 5,000 acres of land or is of sufficient size as to make practicable its preservation and use in an unimpaired condition and also may contain ecological, geological, or other features of scientific education, scenic, or historic value. (sighs) So that's how the government defines wilderness, Mm. which there's some beauty in there. There's also some complication in there, right? Um, right. because it talks about how, uh, uh, it's hereby recognized as an area where the community of life are untrammeled by man and where man is a visitor. However, my, many of the, like the wilderness areas in Utah, there are cliff dwellings, there's ancestral sites, right. right. That some of these people, like some of the, like the Navajo or DNA people or the Ute people like still consider these lands as their active ancestral sites. Yeah. Yeah. I think one way to maybe look at it too, that, that maybe allows for, a more generous or flexible definition than kind of maybe the two that we've provided, maybe John Muir in the mm-hmm. wilderness and then, you know, Aldo Leopold, the right. unification of both. I think another option is Wendell Berry's kind of distinction between the path and the road where he mm-hmm. talks about a path as being kind of a one that requires knowledge of a certain place. Uh, it meanders a little bit, takes form kind of, as one moves across the landscape, but a road is very indicative of resistance of the landscape because it doesn't take into account the knowledge that may be required to move about it. And it very much represents haste because it it just kind of blazes right through whatever landscape it goes across. Right. So I think one might say, you know, maybe we adopt this mentality of the path as opposed to the road where we take a little bit more knowledge from the landscape itself and let that indicate our movement through it or our interaction of it. But that doesn't mean, you know, that we can't move through it or something. No, I like that. But it's hard. Like, I think the reason that that Wilderness Act distinction exists is because of the damage that we've seen to other landscapes. And so it kind of comes as a almost reaction to the fear of losing these vital landscapes we have gotten rid of or or destroyed. It's like, we need to put something really far out. We need to draw a line really far out that says, this is what wilderness is or else we risk losing everything. Yeah. And I think we have not historically reflected a good balance or like a path mentality. And so it's almost like we can't trust ourselves to be responsible. Mm -hmm. So we need to kind of go to another extreme right? in order to like prevent us from even (laughs) having that be a possibility. Yeah. I think there is another aspect of wilderness that we see wilderness as being um, adversarial Mm. to us, to the development of of man or, uh, you know, it's almost to be wild is a pejorative. Right. Right. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think um, something that we often do is like, well, even the idea of like a wild child or we we're always referring to things as like a wild garden where you're like, oh, it's untamed, it's unkempt, it's maybe a little bit unruly. And so wildness kind of takes on this bad connotation within not only our language, but also kind of our attitude towards things that are perceived as wild And so I think in that way, it becomes kind of this adversarial notion, I guess. Yeah. And I think this can be definitely seen in kind of our battles with wolves over the Mm -hmm. years, right? 
that you can, there have been so many extermination orders for wolves right, and we've tried to drive them, them to, yeah, we've tried yeah. to drive them to extinction in many, many places. And wolves are kind of the symbol of the wilderness, right? And they uh, kind of represent the wilderness is pushing back on us, right? Yeah. Because wolves pick off our sheep, our flocks, whatever, right? But we have seen now in these, in the modern world where if we've removed wolves, we've just destroyed an ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Right. And like Yellowstone, like it yeah. can't be Yellowstone without having the wolves there. Right. And in another sense, especially in kind of the Mormon and, you know, sagebrush kind of region is this idea that we're going to make the desert blossom as a rose. We're going to tame the desert. Mm-hmm. And uh, that that idea itself is, you know, as we've talked about before, that maybe that's not the best idea for us to do, that maybe taming something, maybe there's something that we will lose if we tame something. 